I'm just crossing out my question here. I would, did you want the film to be darker? That was one of my questions. I'll just cross that out. Hi, my name is Joel Miller, and today we are listening to my podcast, Party Like a Rockstar. We're brought to you by Misha's Kind Foods. They're an L.A.-based small business making the world's finest non-dairy cheese spreads on the market today. They're delicious and healthy, made from a cashew and almond milk, and blended with various locally sourced fresh herbs, vegetables, and spices. No vegetable oils, soy, fillers, starches, or nutritional yeast. Okay. I know Jomo as a copywriter and editor for the Profiles in History auction catalogs. Profile in History was the leading movie memorabilia and historical document auction house in the industry and recently merged with Heritage Auctions. Joe's a partner in Mad Monster Company editing Mad Monster Magazine, screening horror films at the historical TCL Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, and promoting wow. Mad Monster Party conventions nationally. He's a senior editor for Retro Issues of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Tony Tampone edited Fangoria magazine for decades. He's been the co-host producer on Fangoria Radio for Sirius XM. He's helped bring such Fangoria Sony films to the screen, such as Mind Warp, Children of the Night, and Severed Ties. He's currently working on Eli Ross' History of Horror for AMC. He was a co-producer of the Fuse Fangoria Chainsaw Awards and a consulting producer to the Horror Hall of Fame. He's the author of Men, Makeup, and Monsters and edited Fangoria cover to cover, Fangoria's 100 Best Horror Movies You've Never Seen, Fangoria Vampires, Fangoria Masters of the Dark, and Fangoria's Best Horror Films. My third guest is Michael Grace. Did we lose him? <laughs> Wait, uh, somebody's trying to get in with a... Uh, He's like... Someone uh, me into your interview. Michael's uh, like, that's uh, it. I told uh, you, uh, two okay. minutes. I'm done. <laughs> okay, I'm, right, back. You're back. I'm back. It was, well, it was a, a, a ghost. I should have let you... Car car warranty, wasn't it? They wanted to know if your car yeah. warranty was up to date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Susie? Did Susie call... Yeah. My third guest is Michael Grace. Michael's written produced films that have grossed over one and one half a billion dollars and written screenplays for seven Academy Award winning producers. His credits include Poltergeist one and two, Marked for Death, Great Balls of Fire, Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, Cool World. And one of my favorite films he's very well aware of is a movie called Death Hunt because it's very cool. It's with Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin. And I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it, but I love this movie. <laughs> I like it so much. And so to begin, our big, big death hunt fans. Who? So, <laughs> you and my wife. Really? Well, she's a smart lady. <laughs> yes, she she's she got is. class and finesse. She does. She does. I don't know Gentlemen, what she's doing. We're back. <laughs> Was that good, Michael? Did I do okay? You did great. You did I did great. great. <laughs> Sorry. You, you can you're hired. I'm hired. <laughs> so uh, to get the ball rolling, I guess, you know, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. But um, I'm going to ask you, Michael, how did you meet Mark Victor back in the day? Uh, we grew up together. We met in sixth grade um, <laughs> where I grew up. Uh, the school was split up between a kindergarten and fifth. And then in sixth grade, all the different there were three other, kinder, you know, three other, I don't know what you call them, grade schools. And then w the school that we went to was called a junior high school. 
And that lasted sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And then ninth grade, we went into the high school. So we've we've known we knew each other for all that time, you know, and and beyond, you know, into uh, you know, uh present day, I guess. Yeah. That's so how did you guys start writing together? Were you in were you in junior high school writing stuff? No. Uh, I was, uh, we, 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 we each went traveling um, together in Europe and we ended up on the island of Formentera before there was a hotel there or any much of anything else. And we were um, reading Carlos Castaneda and uh, following in his footsteps, if you know it. And, um, and <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, and so we wrote a screenplay together that was, you know, like, I don't know, 400 pages long. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. But we got hooked on writing it. And then uh, he had a, a serious uh, thing happen in his family and he had to go home and start working for his uh, family. And then he be, then he went to uh, law school, and I went on to uh, the NYU and um, graduate school in um, in Oregon for uh, MFA. And then I went to Los Angeles and started uh, writing for the show Beretta. I was the, the, on staff there, and um, when I got my ch- my shot at a a, um, you know, a show that I could write on my own. I flew to Phoenix where he had become a lawyer and he was sitting behind his desk looking very uncomfortable in a suit. <laughs> I walked in barefoot <laughs> with a beard and laid on his couch and basically said, what you going to do now? <laughs> and, uh, about uh, he had a six weeks later, with a newborn child, he and his wife arrived in Los Angeles and we started writing together. <laughs> so cool. So I, I was going to bring it up in a bit, but these guys don't know. So uh, you have a great story about one of your professors at NYU. And um, if I have to jog your memory more, I will. But I remember yeah. years ago, you had told me that uh, there was no such thing as screenwriting uh, classes at NYU at the time you went to school. Is that right? That's correct. There were no there were no screenwriting classes. Uh, one of my professors was Martin Scorsese. And uh, our, our class consisted of coming, you know, I don't know, it must have been 150 kids in his class. It was like the stadium seating. And he'd come in, he'd still be stoned from the night before. <laughs> and the class was listening to him tell us what he did all night long. <laughs> and, uh, once in a while, there was a, you know, uh, a note about a, a direct, another director and, you know, John Ford, he was, you know, Howard Hawks, those guys he was flipped out about. And then um, his mentor was my mentor, a guy named Hake Mnuchin. And uh, when the finals came, I opened up the blue book for the finals and the finals were like, what lens did John Ford use on this this scene and this movie. You know, I mean, stuff that I had no idea there was even a book. <laughs> so <laughs> I was looking up at, at him and Scorsese and Haig at the front of the class and 
Hague's going, don't do it. Don't, you know, because he knew I was ready to bolt. <laughs> so he's, don't do it. Don't do it. But I, I just, I couldn't answer any of the questions. So I just signed my name and uh, walked out. And Scorsese gave me a B. <laughs> <laughs> so Hague must have given uh, the word. And um, did you get a B or a D? A B. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it was great. He must have laughed uh, at all his jokes during his storytelling. Oh my God, he was. <laughs> it, it was. It wasn't. You didn't have to force yourself. Believe me, it was incredible. He was. He talked faster than any human being I'd ever met. Let me ask you that. <laughs> oh my God. Mm-hmm. You know, he talks fast normally. Can you imagine what he talks fast when he's stoned? <laughs> <laughs> what about you guys, Joe and, and Tony? What uh, what were your backgrounds? What got you into working in the magazines and the world? Well, you- my, my my life sort of led me to Tony because I was I was a Forey Ackerman disciple. I read Famous Monsters, which most people that are listening to this and are interested in this subject know was a 1958 seminal horror monster magazine that. James Warren, Forey Ackerman put out, that really was the longest, ended up being the longest running entertainment magazine, period. It lasted from the 50s through the 80s and revived. And all of us little kids, maybe Michael, for sure, Tony, you know, mm-hmm. we sat around there watching how it was done because Uncle Forey was the first person that turned the spotlight from the stars in front of the camera to the people making films. And right. we suddenly realized, wow, we, we might be able to do this. I was a little kid mm-hmm. in Hawaii dreaming of Hollywood, so my connection <laughs> to Hollywood was Famous Monsters and the Disney records. And uh, <laughs> made friends with Corey, continued my horror trajectory, and then of course, Tony came in, what, 85, with, with or 83? 85, with Fangoria, 85. With Fangoria and, and carried the torch forward. And that's, wh- that's why this group excites me so much, because <laughs> Michael, I think that you really bridged the gap for me between the classic horror um, morality tales and things I loved as a kid, moving mm-hmm. into this slasher realm that kind of discarded a lot of that stuff. And yeah. Tony was there to sort of pull the narrative thread through through our legacy of horror into <laughs> the, the, the modern times. So this is right. a great group to, right. for me to be sitting and listening to. I really appreciate it. <laughs> so what was your process like, Tony, when you first started? I mean, it's gotta be an uphill battle. It's so hard to start something. What was it like when Fangoria was getting going? Well, I wasn't there when Fangoria first launched. The magazine was uh, first uh, produced in 1979 as a sister publication to Starlog. And um, I was reading it as a kid. And I grew up also reading Famous Monsters of Filmland. I worshiped Fari. He sold my first article for me when uh, I was still in uh, college. And um, I broke into uh, Fangoria in 1985. I was a freshman. uh, No, I I had just graduated college. But I'd been writing for uh, Starlog, the system magazine, during that time. So I, I sort of had a good in there. And, uh, and a month out of NYU, uh, coincidentally, uh, a position opened up at uh, Fangoria. The then editor, co-editor had quit. And, uh, you know, uh, the stars were shining uh, above me that, uh, that summer. And I got the job. And it, right. it, you know, it was uh, just a, an amazing experience. It was my dream job. And fresh out of school, I, I just walked right in, basically. It's, you know, I still pinch myself to this day, you know, about how lucky I was being, you know, editing Fangoria all those years and doing a lot of side projects, all horror-related. So it's it's been a great run. Isn't it interesting how luck 
plays such a big role in our lives. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're at a certain place at a certain time and everything goes right. And it's, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's incredible when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of magical what a niche, what us growing up, what a niche and what an outsider genre it was. And how, yeah. as we dove into it, even, even I mean, all the, the great, you know, artists of, of our generation were horror fans. And, came yeah. up and now we've arrived where horror movies are, are winning Oscars and people are completely unapologetic about horror. It's yeah, like, Guillermo will changed. yell at you. If you say Guillermo, to Guillermo, you know, what do you, he'll, he'll get mad at you. He'll say, I, I love this. It's not, this isn't, <laughs> it's an accident. I love this stuff. So yeah, you know, it's, we've really come a long way together and I, it's, it's incredible to watch it happen as a- Yeah, a lot a of directors, now. a lot of directors started in pornography and then, then got, you know, transferred into horror films and then got, you know, what we call now, what we called then legitimate uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. they're, they're still going. So, so Michael, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm, I don't know if I'm quite at your guys's level of the writing. So, um, well, not so, but question is the collaborative effort. So when you were writing with, with Mark Victor, how do you decide who does what? Did you guys have strict rule or roles? Like I'm the dialogue guy. He's the scene guy. How did you mesh uh, it together? Uh, it, <laughs> well, Mark was a businessman and a lawyer. Okay. And, um, I was, you know, mostly the writer and uh, we would go over uh, the outlines together because he had a more logical frame of mind than mine uh, at the time. And, um, and then we'd start writing and, and we'd, I'd give him, you know, like, uh, you write, I'll write scenes one through five, you write scenes, you know, six through eight or whatever. But I could write so much faster than him that it was frustrating for him. So, you know, because I, I wrote, I just kept going, you know, I didn't, there was no stopping, you know, for soccer practice with my son or something, you know, I was just obsessed. So, um, but Mark uh, was a deal maker. He did. He would. He made great deals for us, and um, he would do a lot of the uh, negotiating. Uh, he was a better negotiator than any of the agents we had or lawyers. Um, so that helped a lot, you know, in terms of uh, long-term survival in the world. So I know. Um... So I was, I don't know if I was working the auction with Joe when the clown sold for an obscene amount of money, <laughs> but I remember I'm sitting there texting you like, Michael, Michael, you're not going to believe this. I know. What, what did it sell for in the end, Joe? Wasn't it up around like between, it was between 20, 30 and 40 grand. Unbelievable. I mean, I, yeah. and I remember you writing like, I don't even know how much I got paid to write the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about poltergeist, I guess. I should have probably said that. I don't know if Tony. But oh, yeah. I knew right away. <laughs> yeah. I know, but I know now to, to keep all the props I can find. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, did, I didn't at the time. Yeah. Yeah, people buy, I mean, you'd be shocked. Uh, people, you know, everybody's rung so much out of each, all the titles we love so much. 
nowadays a, a call sheet with a coffee stain on it is invaluable to people. Anything that was on a set, anything that takes you to that memory, you know, people will buy it. It's crazy. What was that that digital art that sold for $68 million or something? I, mean, no. I, I don't know what's going on in the world. I really don't, I don't know. know how it works, but boy. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, don't know if you want to go down this road, but um, you and I had uh, talked. So when Poltergeist was released, you had told me a story the day it came out, um, your experience, I guess, on watching the how crazy it was. Uh, do you remember? Well, the first pre it coming out in the theaters, Stephen had a, a screening of it. And um, I got there late, just a few minutes late, and walked in, and there were no seats available except in the front row. And I started watching it, and I got scared and ran out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, between writing something and then seeing it is two different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the, the night that it came out, we rented a, a limo, and we drove around to all the theaters in, uh, in, in you know, in southern california not all of them but the you know we went to century city and we went to uh, um, westwood and we went to a couple other other big theaters and saw lines around the block i, I think i went into uh shock <laughs> really i just mm-hmm. uh you know i just never expected it uh not that it it shouldn't have gotten that kind of attention but i just didn't expect that i'd be involved in something that would get that much attention so well, it was shocking. Yeah. Really neat. Any funny stories you remember from the shoot? Were you on set all the time or? No, we were picketing. We were on strike. Uh, that's why we had to write it so fast. Um, uh, so I, Stephen sent us AD out to get up. We were picketing our own movie at MGM. Uh, he sent his, his, uh, an AD out to get us because he wanted us to see this really cool scene, which was the Diane rape scene. And he had uh, the whole set on a gimbal. And so, you know, it was mo- moving and, you know, doing all that. So that was really cool. But that was the only scene, that was the only scene I saw shot. Wow. No kidding. Uh, were were you involved in any of the casting process or no? Not in that. No, not in that one. And Poltergeist 2, it was, you know, Spielberg granted us the, you know, he said, you guys do it. So uh, we did everything, you know. But, how, much uh, of the, how much of Poltergeist 2 is ad lib, like the humor stuff? Is that in the script? It's all in the script. Nothing was ad lib. Nothing wow. was ad lib. Yeah. And then uh, I, I love the story how you got, how you got the job to write uh, Poltergeist in the get-go how I got it. To, oh, well, Stephen invited us up to his house. He had seen um, Death Hunt and he, the movie that you love. And he had read a script of ours, which was a, co- which was a kind of a group comedy called Turn Left or Die about air traffic controllers. So he said, well, well, they can, you know, they can write action and they can write funny. And so, you know, these might be my guys for this movie that I want to do called a guy named joe so he invited us up for the screening for uh, a guy named joe and we watched the movie and we were like you know oh, that's okay and then afterwards uh we all got relaxed so to speak and um <laughs> and uh 
he started telling us about this ghost story that he wanted to, wanted to do. And it was intriguing. I mean, that, that, then we're interested, you know, we're like, oh, God, this is better than Joe. So, mm-hmm. you know, being new and young and um, really not knowing what you should or shouldn't do. The next day I called him up. I said, you know, Stephen, I, I, I like that guy named Joe movie, but not as much as I like that ghost story. <laughs> So he said, mm-hmm. well, I'm in negotiations with the writer and I don't think it's going too well. So if, so if he if that doesn't go through, I'll hire you guys can can come on board on that. So was that writer Stephen King? I think it was. And so um, he called up a couple of days later and said, you got the job. So that was it. That's neat. And so you started sure researching. Whatever, whatever happened to that Stephen King? Did he do okay? Yeah. <laughs> I just read he doesn't like the, he doesn't like Halloween. I just read he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't like the holiday. I ended up doing a film with him, and uh, he's quite a character, quite a character, a nice man, and um, I don't know how he writes as many books as he writes. I just uh, it's beyond me. He's just like downloading it. He's like a Martian or something. <laughs> And fast, right? And I don't think he he doesn't do an outline, does he? He just goes for it. I think I think he gets a he gets something in his head. He sits down and starts. He's just Mm -hmm. he's he's meant to do it. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And they're and God, I mean, they're they're all great. You know, what was it like uh, meeting? uh, I know you you went to uh, Giger's. I think you went to his house, didn't you? Yeah, after the after the the shoot of uh, Poltergeist two. I flew to, uh, I think, Austria. I think it was, yeah, somewhere. Well, Austria, I think. And, um, yeah, visited him in his house. And uh, he and his manager had a restaurant that was all uh, alien stuff. You know, the chairs were aliens uh, from from the movie. You know, black. I mean, it was was dark. And he was like um, a child. He had, he was, his maturity level was about of a 14 year old and um, his manager tried to keep control of him, but he kept falling in love with hookers and, uh, you know, and then there'd be trouble. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was quite an experience in his house. He had, you know, he had painted all over the walls, you know, not paintings, just painting on the walls. And, uh, you know, he, he was, he was a great a great guy really you know kind of sad great i read he said he was unhappy with how poltergeist 2 turned out did do you remember anything like that with him saying that he wasn't happy with the way uh not not the film but his actual special effects stuff well um the special effect that was great was the the beast underneath the bed that one yeah that was there was a there was an actual person inside that bodysuit and that turned out great but i agree with him that the the the, um the beast at the end was not good Uh, you know it was my first production and i made a lot of uh newbie mistakes Mm -hmm. uh one of them listening too much to the uh special effects supervisor and we changed the entire end because he wanted to use his those flying the flying things and we found out that he had 
just bought the, this rig and so he wanted, <laughs> he wanted to use it you know right what was the end supposed to be the end was supposed to look more like uh that movie what dreams may come i think it was mm -hmm. called oh uh, yeah yeah it was written like that that's and, a matheson, uh, matheson story right tony richard matheson yes story? yeah and, yeah and, and you know, Michael, I don't know how Tony might have some opinions about this. I'm real interested in your influences as far as ghost stories go, because when, when I thought of you, what you've done and, 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 and what you brought forward, I really, I mean, things that, that got went into my head are things like uh, The Legend of Hell House, um, mm -hmm. you know, things like that, that really, uh, right, right before the, the bad guys became anti-heroes and we, we were supposed to love them, but at the point where there's the, a nuclear family or a sympathetic character creature, and all of this turmoil is happening and you're really pulling with them. And that, I thought of Matheson and I thought of, of Legend of Hell House in relation to, to your film. I wonder, wonder what some of your horror influences might've been. Or my, my horror influences really before that, when, when I was uh, younger, there was a, a show on it that came on at midnight on Saturdays and my whole family, you know, the, my sisters were older, so they were out on dates. And my parents were out doing something. So I was home alone with this uh, monster show on television. And I was, you know, I was terrified, but <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't take myself away. Mm -hmm. I mean, I loved Frankenstein, the mummy, uh, Dracula. Uh, I'm still uh, Dracula. I'm still a a Dracula fan, big time. And um, my more modern um, references would be, um, you know, I don't know what came first or, or afterwards, but I think um, Friday the 13th, Freddy, um, those were influential on my thinking and and how i uh, you know I, I really wasn't into um it was a, it was i really wasn't into sympathetic families mm -hmm. uh i was you know if it wasn't a spielberg movie um it, it that wouldn't have happened <laughs> we actually had a we we would meet with steve he was doing et mm -hmm. and all of our meetings with steven were in the mgm cam commissary Mm -hmm. and so we're doing the outline and then you know i said you know what this is just we got to do something special here <laughs> so we went to see steven and we said steven you know you got toby hooper you know we know you want to do something different so people gotta die so he <laughs> said who's gonna die so we said the whole family. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen made you have a family and you decided to kill them. I get it. I'm, I'm getting the picture now. I'm just, I'm just crossing yeah. out my question here. I would, did you want the film to be darker? That was one of my questions. I'll just so, cross that out. He almost had a stroke over his beef stroganoff or whatever. And so he said, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You can't do that. I said, well, we got to kill somebody. We got to kill one of them. He says, all right, all right, all right, you got to kill one of them. He says, all right, who are you going to kill? And so we went, Carol Ann. He went, you guys are thick. You know, so that's how she got to disappear and not die, but disappear. And um, that's how that, that occurred. But it was fun, you know, writing the humor, writing the family humor. And uh, yeah, 
the characters uh, lent, you know, once they were created, they lent themselves to 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 the way they were. You know, we basically they were our age, uh, or a little bit older than us at the time. But um, you know, how how hard is it? To, I mean, your main character is Carol Ann. How how do you write a little girl's uh, demeanor, life, everything? You were, you know, I hate to break it to you, you weren't a little girl. So how? how uh, yeah, actually, you are. You're like a guy's guy. You know, I, I imagine you watching Twilight Zone every week on the hour. So yes. how, how do you do that and do a good job of it? I don't know, but I wrote I wrote a novel called Krista's Luck, which is about a 13 year old girl and her friend who is 15 and another friend who's 16 and, and a little bo- and a young boy who's 14. And I don't know. I just, I don't know how. That's really neat. And then where, where the kid, you, Michael has a sister. Was there any, uh, was there anything similar with the relationship of the two younger kids to you and your sister? No, nothing. No, no. no. You didn't My share sister, a room growing one up. Of, one, of them, one of them was a, kind of a goody two shoes and the the other one um was well i guess um in the in poltergeist one the 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 girl who was uh, always on the phone and who uh, who knew the hotel the motel that because she had slept with her boyfriend at that motel that her f- parents mentioned oh yeah you know that might have been my a little bit of my older sister in that one <laughs> okay <laughs> Why, why is Dominic Dunn always eating <laughs> every scene? Is that anything from you or is that just something they did in the character film? Uh, that's just, yeah, I don't know. He's eating in every scene. I thought it was funny. All right. You guys can jump in. I have a whole bunch of these questions, but you might have ones that are a little more high, high level. Well, I'd love to know um, uh, Michael's take on the whole who directed Poltergeist controversy yeah. that's still talked about to this day. I know. Stephen. So weird, you know. It, I, you know, I because I wasn't involved. I wasn't on the set, so mm. I saw that one scene. And that one scene, Toby was in the director's chair, and Spielberg was standing behind him with his arms on the chair. And it, <laughs> you know, the movie feels like a it. It feels like a Spielberg movie. It doesn't feel like a Toby Hooper film, but uh, I imagine it was a collaboration. Um, mm. You know, um, uh, but I know it's a, I don't know why any, any of this is still a controversy, but, um, mm. you know, I, I'd, I'd say that probably Stephen had a, a larger influence on the, on the outcome of the film than Toby did. Right. I see. Yeah. I was asking uh, Tony, where, where, where does Poltergeist land with the fans? It's right in that sweet spot, you know, coming into the hardcore slashers and stuff, and, you know, in that, in that little pond. Do the fans... I, um, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the readers embraced it at the time, definitely. You know, we put, uh, it was before I, I was uh-huh. at the magazine, but uh, the, ma- the movie was featured on the cover, and That's then right. I put Poltergeist 2 on the cover. Mm-hmm. Poltergeist 3, I didn't put on the cover, <laughs> but wisely yeah uh, but you know we, we did a lot of co- while i was there uh, you know we did a ton of coverage on uh, poltergeist uh, mm-hmm. two and then we've interviewed so many of the act on the films over the years uh, mm-hmm. including one of my favorites james mm-hmm. karen who was the the realtor who uh passed away yeah, not yeah, too long ago he's great uh, he's always he was yeah loved him 
<laughs> it was so awesome. And so, uh, yeah, so the, our, our readers have always been uh, pretty, you know, f uh, fav favorable towards uh, the Poltergeist, the first two films, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and unlike others, you know, say Spielberg produced stuff like we always got a ton of hate mail when we covered Jurassic Park. So they didn't think it was horror enough. Uh, it was too Spielberg, you know, but Poltergeist, there was pretty there was no, um, uh, you know, negative feelings because it was, like, a, you know, a mainstream like a, a gateway Spielberg film. It's like a gateway horror movie. I know people that show yeah. the first horror movie people show their kids uh, horror lovers. They feel like they can show their kids that before they can show Freddy or you know, any of the slash them ups. So, right. so Michael uh, just moved. We can, we can give the old address out to people who want to send hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good way to let them into the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Neighbors would love it. Neighbors would love what, uh, what scenes did you write first in Poltergeist one and, uh, and in, in Poltergeist two, which were the scenes that you started with? Oh, we, went, we, we went in order. We oh, went okay. in, oh yeah. We always do. I, I always, yeah. Is that because you write an outline? Michael always used to yell at me, you need to write an outline, and I refuse. And you know what, Joel? Uh, yeah. I did that for years and years, uh, and I don't anymore. I haven't for the last, uh, oh gosh, 10 or 15 years. I, I just have, I know the beginning, the middle, and the end, and I know the lead characters, and then I just start. Wow. Did Zelda, did Zelda have any uh, ad-lib stuff or that, that's all in the script too? All, all in the script. And you were Not very, you stayed very perfect. friendly with her, I think, till she passed away, right? Yeah. Yeah. We were friends. And um, she was a character. She was, she was <laughs> another one. Every time we had some sort of uh, event, she'd show up with a handsome young man, a different one every time. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> He's my we neighbor. Getting him, but I don't think they were free. But uh, <laughs> she'd always have some cute guy. She'd be on her scooter in the grocery store ordering them around. <laughs> no, black licorice. No, to the eggs. And she'd be. <laughs> <laughs> what does Tangina mean? What? I'm sorry. Her name in the films are uh, is Tangina. What does Tangina mean? Where'd you come up with that? You know, I I don't remember where. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Poltergeist 2, what's with the sweater she wore in the kitchen? <laughs> it's one of the best Christmas sweaters I've ever seen in my life. We want to remake it. <laughs> it, had, it had to be the ugliest, right? It was really bad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we went for, yeah, we went for laughs on that one. <laughs> it was really great. <laughs> All right, so uh, Poltergeist 2, Julian Beck was the, was the fellow who paid uh, Reverend Henry Kane. Um, you, you were involved more in the casting process on the second film. Oh, totally. Yeah. So where did hit that guy? Where did you find this guy? How, what happened? How did that come about? Well, okay. So it's my first year of college and my second, I guess my second semester was abroad and that was in South America. We went to Lima, Peru. So I'm walking through the town square and this guy comes up to me and he, it's like a drug deal. He says, want to see a play? I said, yeah, I want to see a play. Just follow him. So I follow him down these streets into this like, you know, narrow street. And then this door opens. He opens this door that's in a wall. And I walk in and there's a theater in there. And they're filled with kids, with young people. And there's 
a stage and there's people standing on from you know from the cat uh, on the corners uh, of the of the room and there's doing that they're interpreting the play in three different languages in spanish english and french and so the living theater was started by julian beck and his wife and so they come out on stage and proceed to break every single law <laughs> you could break in in uh, in Peru. I mean, they were smoking dope. They were fornicating. They were naked. They were. I don't even know what the word. What, <laughs> I don't know if the dialogue or not. But it had such a profound effect on me. I mean, I was. Just, <laughs> holy crap! This is unbelievable. This is brilliant. And so we were casting uh, for the for the character of. Uh, for the evil, you know, uh, priest. And somebody mentioned Julian Beck. And I said, oh, we got to have Julian Beck. Are you kidding? And then it came about that the, the studio <clears throat> wouldn't insure him because he had uh, AIDS. And so uh, I, me and um, the director said, uh, we'll insure him because we wanted him in the movie. So we insured him. Oh my God. And <laughs> I'm back. back. And we, we insured him and he was fantastic. He came to the set with his wife and his boyfriend. And uh, he, the guy was incredible. And uh, they were all very, and uh, he was so grateful, you know, because it was, I think this was, it was, I think he did one other movie afterwards but he was so grateful to be doing this and the character that he played uh really you know he knew he was dying and the character was you know like a gym we made him after like the character jim jones so he took his tribe and took them into a cavern underneath the desert and you know basically gave them poison and so he's sitting on top of this uh mound that was you know, you know on stage uh and was talking to them and tears are coming out of his eyes. And he was, he was just very moving. He was fantastic. He was just fantastic. He was and, so good. And, the, and scary, the, scary dude. Yeah. Oh, scary. <laughs> yeah. I read yeah. that that was the only time Heather O'Rourke just cried her eyes out when she saw him. Cause he was so scary. <laughs> yeah. But he really was a really gentle man. And uh, this, the story about the, this cavern has its own, has its own story um when we went into the set to shoot that scene uh there were you know skeletons on the on the mound on the little hill or whatever and uh nobody could get up the hill the, the cat nobody the crew nobody could get up the hill they kept sliding off and then a camera flew off it's you know you know when these big that never happens camera flew off and fell onto the ground you know from a height wow. and so will samson is sitting there and i know he's he's a, a real shaman you know he's, he's he's not fooling around and so i went up and sat next to him and said will what's going on and he said skeletons aren't happy i said <laughs> really he said yeah he says some of those are they're not plastic some of them are real skeletons and so i said well what are we going to do about it 
He said, what can we do about it? He said, leave the stage door open tonight. Tell the guard I'm going to be coming in and I'll fix it. So we did. The next day we come in. Everything's cool. Everybody can get up the hill. And I don't know what he did, but he, he, he worked his magic and he made the skeletons happy, I guess. <laughs> I heard that the next day after that, um, all of the footage was no good. It was all, it was all just black. They had nothing came out of the cameras. Is that true? The, the day that we've shot or the day before? The shooting day after. No, that's not true. No, the shooting day after everything was fine, actually. Okay. The, Did you ever you know, lose the, a day of shooting? Did that ever happen? Yeah, we, lost, we lost that full day with when the nobody could get up the hill and the camera fell off. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, So the camera footage wasn't blank. It's just you weren't able to work. No. Yeah. Gotcha. There was no, yeah. Not, and, and everybody was freaked out. I mean, because no one had seen anything like this. So, so what the hell is going on? You know? So I, yeah, I read this. So the, the crew demanded an exorcism. Is that true? Or just he, he kind of suggested he would help out? No, the, uh, the crew didn't say anything. They were silent. I, I went up to, to, to Will where he was sitting in his chair and just asked him what we could do, what was going on. And the story I just relayed is, is really what happened. Oh, cool. And then uh, did the studio rush the production? No, they didn't. As matter, fact, the... we, matter of fact, we had some reshoots. Um, and uh, John Bruno did the reshoots, did a really good job. And they put up an extra million dollars um, f- to do that. So, no, they were behind the film. Okay, yeah, Zelda Rubenstein had said that some of the best scenes from the film were cut because I think she was in the scenes, but... Um... <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I've seen your take. Okay. Uh, true or false, Poltergeist 1. So, the tub, the bathtub, is meant to be a womb. Um, it's meant to be an element of relief. And um, is that any truth to that? Or why, why did they get into the bathtub? Well it's supposed to be a rebirth when they come out of the ceiling and fall into the tub. Um, so, uh, in that regard, um, yeah, I would agree with that statement. Okay. And then Carol Ann's birth is what awakened everything. Carol Ann's birth. I mean, her first birth or her rebirth, <laughs> which birth? Her first birth is what they said. If they go through a chronology, uh, chronologically, they said uh, that she was born, I think it's five years, which is when they began to build the house. So is there any link from her being born um, to? Well, yeah, there is, because um, poltergeist uh, phenomenon is often, uh, well, she was a little too young, but it often uh surrounds a a young girl but usually a girl who is just transitioning from being a young girl to um a young woman which you know obviously carol ann wasn't but you know stephen cast carol ann so uh he found her in the cafeteria um she was with her mom she wasn't an actress so (laughs) so the stuff on happy days came after uh, she was uh what was she joe she she was uh 
She was Fonzie's niece or something on Happy Days. I remember. Oh, I, I didn't even know that. I thought this was her I'm first. Right. <laughs> it was first. Yeah, that would have been pretty early. Yeah, she was probably a because she was really young. But I tell you, she was the most professional actor on that whole set. Yeah. <laughs> You know, she'd do something that you'd think, oh, my God, this girl's going to be traumatized. And then the director would say, cut. And she'd be like, oh, no, no, you know, it's like nothing happened. Yeah, she was so cool. That's super cool. And then so Dominic Dunn's character, is she supposed to be a stepdaughter or did you? Uh... No, she's supposed to be. No, not a stepdaughter. She's a daughter, daughter. And uh, they just had her, you know. They had Carol Ann later. Okay. Yeah, they say then that so then the mother would have had her when she was like 16 years old and <laughs> none of that came in. A, and then I love I loved at the end. I, I watched it twice. She does get in the car. But I, I swear yeah. when I was watching them, like they totally just left the teenager who eats all the time. <laughs> and they just left. Her <laughs> greatest car. Okay, stay. Bye. <laughs> her greatest moment was her scream, what's happening? That was so great. She just really delivered that perfectly. Now yeah. she was yeah, she was good kid. Good kid. It was sorry what happened to her. It's horrible what happened, yeah. Yeah. Did, did you sit there? I mean, I'm I'm watching the film and they're they're in the bathtub, and I'm just thinking get out of the house and i know it's intentional but as a writer and which, creator, which one are you talking about one or two i'm talking about one and they're in the, okay. they're in the tub and i'm just looking like he's okay well you know we're gonna go stay at a hotel tonight and i'm like duh and then the next thing you know they're in pajamas and they're like getting ready i presume no, she's the only one that gets in the tub uh diane and what was really cool about that scene was you he spielberg or Toby, whoever, uh, they shot the scene like that something was going to grab, well, something was going to come out of the, the spigot or come up from the, you know, the, where the water goes, you know, drains out, so that something was going to happen and then nothing did. It was brilliant. I thought that was just brilliant. And then she goes into her room and she's dyeing her hair or whatever the hell she was doing. And then she gets grabbed. Right. So it, it was really. See, I know. thought they stayed in the house because of late check-in. And I'm like, late check-in can be a real bitch. <laughs> well, they, they stayed in the house because Stephen had to do, had to go do something with the boss or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And he said, I'll be back. And then he came back late. Yeah. And then you wrote in uh, them going to the grandma's house in the second one. Was that always a plan? Did you have the thread already put out? Well, the thing with the second one, none of the cast was tied, was committed to do a second movie. So we had to go to each actor and convince them to be in a sequel, which at that time wasn't the hippest thing to do. Um, sequels weren't what they are now, where they always make more money than the, than the, than the original. So um, in talking to the cast, we basically developed the screenplay around the cast. So Diane, um, her, her, her uh, uh, grandmother died. So we put that in the script. Uh, for, um, um, what's his name, the father? Uh, Craig uh, T. Nelson. Craig T. Nelson, he had spent time at Mount Shasta and had 
uh, some interesting stuff with a uh, with a Native American, like the thing with the car. And he said, yeah. you know, he he that was that he related that story to us about how this guy said he was going to fix his car. This <laughs> car was car was in a bad mood or something, and the car ended up being worse than it was before. So I mean, you know, we we just you know had to get those guys involved again and so that that dictated uh some of the things that happened and one and one of the things was the uh the grandmother dying hmm. all right serious question uh so what what gave you more nightmares making poltergeist or working with steven seagal in mark for death <laughs> 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 no answer <laughs> yeah see my see now, now my hair is gray now okay but it started with Steven Seagal. <laughs> I mean, he—he's—he's. He's, there's a monster. <laughs> there is a monster. Oh he's a—he's a troubled person. Such a uh, fun movie to watch, though. Yeah. Well, he was—he was still, you know, he wasn't four hundred pounds. You know, he, he still could move <laughs> around. Uh, he, he hadn't gone totally insane, uh, as I think he is now. But, um, you know. Did you like filming in Brooklyn? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but we shot our whole, we shot, well, it was supposed to be in Illinois where, the, where he was uh, retired, where he, he went. And um, I think the Brooklyn one was either, was it before or after? I think it might have been after no it was before uh yeah we were in illinois and um we shot the whole thing in in los angeles in an, in and around los angeles and just doubled it for illinois and got some footage of the highway and boom death hunt was the first feature right that you did the first feature that i did not that you wrote but the first feature that got made was death hunt Death Hunt, yes. So what was it like when you knew you were going to be working with Charles Bronson? Uh, when, they told, when they told me what the cast was, we were completely blown away. And uh, then they, you know, we shot in Lake Louise. They shot in Lake Louise. And uh, the director was a great guy. He flew us up. And uh, we were staying at this beautiful old hotel that's right on Lake Louise. How, how old? I mean, you're you're a kid then. You, you had to be. I'm in early, early 20s. Yeah. yeah so, cool. so, so um, they said, uh, you want to see the set? So he said, yeah, of course we want to see the set. So the guy goes, this guy points to a bunch of trees. He says, build <laughs> beyond the trees. Go go beyond the trees. So, okay. So we, we're walking through the snow and we get through this bunch of trees and we look up and there's the town we wrote that was three sentences long in the script and the names that we put on all the buildings in the script are in on, on all the buildings and there's horses running down the street and wagons and people i was just like oh my god so then the ad was taking us around when they had a break and he introduced us he said first he introduced us to um to Bronson, we went up. To, he says, uh, uh, "Mr. Bronson, I'd like you to meet uh, Michael Grace, Mark Victor. They, they're the writers of this." 
and Bronson is throwing um, uh, nails into a bucket. This mean, boom, boom. He says, you know who should die on this movie? And we're hoping it's not us. <laughs> we said, no, we don't know. He said, he's wearing this yak jacket that's like all these different animal skin. He says, the wardrobe lady. <laughs> and so Marvin is just sitting on a log, you know, trying to pretend he's not drinking. And he looks up and he goes, well, you've just met good time, Charlie. <laughs> Marvin was, and he, he, and he always was bugging Bronson all the time. And they had formed this kind of relationship when they did the Dirty Dozen or whatever the first movie they did together. And, uh, but this was the first time, this was the first movie that they were on screen, like face to face, which was in the, uh, at, out at the cabin. And uh, Bronson was just, he was magnificent in this movie. I, I thought he was great. And um, the whole cast was amazing. It was a, it was a great experience. Yeah. Uh, I'm saying, wow, you know, the producer is a guy that did get Godfather, won the Oscar for the Godfather. And uh, yeah. I was thinking, this is my life. What, how, how did this happen? Wow. <laughs> and then in, uh, and so Cool World, that's Brad Pitt's first. I think leading role, I think, right? Yeah, in uh, Thelma and Louise, uh, that was that was the movie he did uh, before he did Cool World, and, and uh, yeah. And that one, they changed the script. You, you, they changed their. You changed the script dramatically, right? At the end, the no. end of the film's totally different. We didn't. They did. What happened was, uh, Mancuso Senior was the head of the studio. And then they brought in uh, a, a gentleman who was very hot in television. He was the head of one of the networks, uh, Brandon Tartikoff. And Brandon came in and, you know, as they do, the new, the new heads of studios, they look over what they're, you know, what they're dealing with, what they got. And he said, why are you doing a live action animated film for adults? They said, this should be for kids. <laughs> or so uh, uh, so um, that kind of threw a monkey wrench into everything and so uh, at that point they let us go because our our movie was you know not not for kids and um, I mean, a lot of a lot of what we wrote was in there but a lot of it was uh, taken out the whole ending was was changed uh, and so they brought in, uh, I think it was Larry Gross did a did a rewrite, and then uh, Mancuso and Bakshi claimed that they had written the story, they had invented it, they'd writ they'd written it, and you know they didn't tell us anything. They we we knew nothing. We came. They Mancuso called us and said, "I'm doing a movie with Ralph Bakshi. You want to come and pitch something to him?" And I knew his work, so I knew exactly what he wanted. You know, you know, hookers, gangsters, you know, crazy. And so we pitched him Cool World. And he stood up and said, you're my guys, you know. So after the movie came, was shot, he and Mancuso, well, they wouldn't let us see it. So we didn't know what, what, what it was. We figured, well, okay, they wouldn't let us see it. And they, and they started uh, arbitrations 
to say that they created it. They wrote, you know, that they came up with the concept and they came up with the characters and blah, blah, blah. Oh, a nightmare. Yeah. So we had two arbitrations with the Writers Guild and then another arbitration with a, a judge. They lost everyone. Uh. <laughs> I mean, there was just, I mean, it was ridiculous. And then um, Bakshi came out with a statement that was on Wikipedia for a while until I changed it, which he said that, you know, he wrote the script and then we surprised him with a script later on. And then he punched out Mancuso. <laughs> it was just like, oh my God. Wow, he was, he, he was uh, not stable. A lot, <laughs> you know, a lot of footage that he shot live action footage. So it was about, I've, I've heard it was, you know, like a, a week's worth of live action footage was just unusable that they just had to dump it because uh, it just wasn't doable. So he had to put in all those little things flying across the screen, those little, <laughs> which, uh, you know, it wasn't successful at the time, but, you know, years later, 10 years later, it's become like a, cult classic for stoners you know they just love it so you know <laughs> just just never know what's going to happen what are the uh, horror films uh, coming out these days that you guys are into oh sorry joe you go you cut out for a right. sec sorry joe uh, you, you know you you hit on uh, um un the unexpected nature of making movies you've made a lot of different kinds of films i was thinking you know poltergeist maybe but in your experience of being on a set, what's the happiest accident that you've experienced? I love happy accidents in film. I hear people talk about these unexpected things happening that just take things to another dimension or make a performance, you know, soar, things like that. Can you well, think of any? There were a couple of things on there were a couple of things on Poltergeist. Uh, on Poltergeist Two, uh, the the creature under the bed. That just turned out so great. I mean, it scared everybody that was even that was there. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> you know. And the guy that was in the suit, his name was Noble Craig, and he had um, he had been in Vietnam. He lost an arm and he lost both legs and an arm, and you know, he fit into that suit. He was really strong, really strong. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm sort of feeling sorry for him. And, and then his wife shows up. And she's like, you know, Miss America. And he's got two or three little kids that are all like, you know, gorgeous. I'm thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't think I got to be sorry for him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, so, so that scene was, was a, a happy, revel, you know, happy moment. And the other scene was that scene with Steven in the car. When he pulls up in that car that's smoking and he jumps out of it and he runs up to, to Will Sampson, and he goes, I don't know what you did. That car, Will Sampson goes, it's angry. And Stephen goes, that car is pissed. <laughs> <laughs> it just totally created a character for me. He was just great in it. He was just great in that role. He so, really was. I love yeah. Coach though too, and and then with yeah. Will, I'm the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest is just such a great film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the with the other scene that I loved was uh, which was a, a line that 
that I wrote. I, I didn't expect it to be delivered as well as Will delivered it, but they came out of the diner and the family's there and Will Sampson sitting on their car and and they had just had the waitress was channeling something, a warning to them or something. And so um, Craig says to him, are, are you in cahoots with that lady in there? And Will Sampson just looks at him and goes, I cahoot with no one. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think that the lines uh, they're here would, would have such a significant impact? No, I had no idea. No idea. Uh, you know, I mean, if I, if I, every advertisement was, uh, you know, they're here or they're back, you know, if I had a, a dime for every time I heard that uh, on advertisements and this, they're still doing it and they're doing, they do it the way it was done in the movie. They're back, you know? Yeah, no, no clue. Amazing. Yeah. So what horror films do you guys uh, see coming out that you truly love? What what what's uh, what do you have your your thumb on right now that you guys really enjoy? Well, for me, The Empty Man was a revelation. Um, uh, David Pryor uh, made a movie. He made his dream come true. He was a writer, and he got his chance to make this movie. And he went to uh, I think it's 20th Century Fox because he was sort of mentored through the program. And then 20th Century Fox was bought by Disney, to, and his mentor was canned. So he was adrift. <laughs> And then Disney didn't know what to do with it. So they just sort of floated it on uh, Amazon. And he's made <laughs> this masterpiece. I mean, it's it's really, really, there's so oh, much heart in it. It's called The Empty Man. And it's it's yep. just, it's it's beautiful. And uh, he put everything into it, you know? And you can, you can see that it's one of those heartbreaking Hollywood stories where guy gets his dream chance. He, he totally exploits the whole thing, makes it, makes a beautiful piece of work. And the studio, you know, trashes it by by neglecting it. So if you guys get a chance to see it, um, David's, you know, he's on Facebook. He's really accessible. Um, the fact uh, that all I'm of us have told him how to see it, I'm gonna definitely want to see it. I want to see it tonight. Please watch it and and just go tell David you liked it. He said, you know, he said that that as depressing as it was, just having fans and colleagues and people like us who love the genre tell him that he did a good job has made up for all of it. So. I think you guys will love it and, and he certainly will love for you to see it. So great. Cool. My experience recently has been uh, uh, a young girl contacted me on uh, LinkedIn or Facebook. I don't know which 15 years old. And she said, you know, you're my hero because you did poltergeist. She said, I'd like to write a horror picture. And so I said, okay. She said, would you help me? I said, sure. I'll help you. So she said, uh, well, why don't we write it together? I said, okay, okay we'll write it together. Uh, tell me what you want to, what you want to want to do. And she had the whole idea worked out in her head. And uh, so she sent me her first draft and I, I, I called her up. I said, there's nothing for me to do. <laughs> you, you wrote the movie, you know, and now it's, a, it's like in pre pre-production at uh, oh, Buffalo. Good for her. And yeah, it, it you know, getting to this time of my my life where I can, you know, mentor some young people into the business is uh is is joyful to me. I was a terrible student, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, you would have never hired me at Fangoria. I assure you. 
Like Michael sent me home. He goes, I want you to sober up for one night. And I want you to come back tomorrow and tell me a movie and we're going to work on it together. And I came up to the <laughs> office and I was like, I, I came up with a great idea. It's called Poltergeist 4. You and I are going to do it. We're going to make bucks. And he's like, get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tony, you brought a lot of people up. Tony, you brought a lot of people up to the ranks in, in Fango that have become, you know, gotten some of their dreams accomplished. You, you really uh, influenced gen- at least two or three generations yourself. Great. So. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, that's real cool to say. Yeah, um, people like Eli Roth, James Gunn, they all read Fangoria growing up. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then to see them become successful and say, it was my dream to be on the cover of Fangoria someday. It's very gratifying to hear that cool. kind of stuff. Yeah. It's really, really cool. What were some of your memorable experiences coming up uh, while working there? Oh, gee, pr- probably um, the, the convention circuit. You know, we, we started these Fangoria Weekend of Horrors conventions where we brought, brought the magazine to life uh, for fans in a hotel over a weekend. And you know, I got to meet all my horror heroes at these, these shows, which were in cities nationwide. But, you know, we had a lot of the people I grew up with, like Vincent Price and Christopher Lee came to the shows and all the modern masses of horror were there toby hooper george romero clive barker um you know a to z dario argento rob zombie um no and uh, it was great just having these people on our stages in an era where celebrities didn't charge for autographs and it was a lot more relaxed and free and um they were just great times so and I tell you, you made, that's you, you made celebrities out, out of a lot of effects guys who were toiling away and behind the scenes doing beautiful work you brought that's true yeah all of us got to be fans of theirs so that was a great <laughs> they were thing. the rock stars and the, the horror movies of the 80s and some of who michael worked with like steve johnson and yeah. you know on on uh and, and some of the uh, boss effects guys on the first public yeah. guys and yeah. uh and yeah they were the rock stars you know it, it wasn't the the actors who the fans re- were really going gaga over it was the effects people oh, know, from tr- dick smith to tom sabini and uh, richard edlin richard edlin yeah the, these are the people they wanted to read about in fangoria and then yeah. things changed you know when the nightmare on elm street movie started to take off then freddie became this iconic character uh, but, you know, the, 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 the readers of the magazine really love to get to the nuts and bolts of how they put that latex on these actors' faces mm-hmm. and, and all, all the know, crazy. A lot, a lot of those special effects guys started out as, uh, as uh, engineers, pilots. Wow. Huh. Yeah, uh, Edlin, like, a, I don't know, he, he was like a test pilot or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. You know, screw around with engines, you know, and... <laughs> They got figured out how to do all kinds of stuff, you know, with nothing. I mean, the, the clouds, for, for instance, the clouds in uh, in Poltergeist where the clouds, dark clouds are coming across it. That was shot in a, uh, like a, almost like, this, uh, it's like a large fish tank. And they mm-hmm. poured like ink or oil over the right. top. Shot it, you know, I mean, it's so inventive. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> That's it something. Didn't come out of a computer. No. You know, <laughs> fully, fully morphed. You know, they they really were were cool guys. Still are probably. I don't know. You were working on. Uh, you were putting a lot of time into that. Uh, you called it Border Wars, and you were uh, with Peter Fonda. 
Um, now that he's passed away, is that something you think you can, or is going to come to light or cause you, you, I know you put a couple of years into uh, working on it. Um, it's, it's ready. It's, it's a series. It was a movie. It was going to be a movie. It's a series and it's ready to go out for, for sale. And, uh, Peter was an amazing guy to be around. He was great. Uh, and he, he was one of the most conservative people uh, I've met in the film business. He was straight as an arrow. Um, and that, that surprised me a lot. And um, the, the, the script that he helped me on was turned out to be crap. <laughs> so, uh, his, his, his contribution wasn't uh, uh, great, but his contribution to my life was was great so it had to be all be redone so it's been redone speaking of which so what was it like hanging out with ackerman back in the day i mean you did you live with him joe or what was your relationship i, I, I you know I, I came from hawaii went on a tour of his mansion like so many fans every saturday at 11 to the mecca of horror movie props and memorabilia and this guy who'd known all of them and really kind of kick-started fandom you know and um I was from Hawaii and I was always taught you treat your, you know, calabash or your adopted relatives the same way you do your blood relatives. And I saw he needed a lot of help. And so I asked, do you need a little help? He said, yeah, come back tomorrow and uh, you can help me clean up the garage. And, and I just never left. I, I was there often <laughs> and I got to know him very well and got to see some of my heroes too, from Christopher Lee to, you know, Ferdie Maine and, you know, Curtis Harrington, great directors and, you know, just a whole bunch of people that, that I'd admired, you know, walk through those halls. And, um, you know, it was, it was uh, quite an experience and uh, it changed my life forever. I met people like Tony and, and uh, you know, got immersed in the community and uh, have contributed my bit. You know, I'm still a student of filmmaking, trying to, trying to do stuff at 61 years old. I'm still trying to make my way and accomplishing something every day. So it's a, you know, and Michael, as you say, you get to this age and you sort of want to uh, give back a little. So I've, I've taken to working with Black Bedsheet Books with Nicholas Grabowski, publishing um, uh, short stories and something I call a fanthology through uh -huh. Days of the Dead, uh, Days of the Dead uh, convention. So we have a brick and mortar convention in six cities across the country. Really I, solicit, I solicit from kids to send a short story based on some mythology about the place where the show is, because uh -huh. that way I can have them all come in and present mm -hmm. them and give them hard copies of their books and awesome. sort of the fandom celebrate them and really make them feel like they're part of it. We awesome. incorporate some established writers and mm -hmm. a lot of these kids are first time writers. And I just sort of, as, as uh, uh, constructively as possible, do, you know, little critiques about, right. you know, what if, what if, what if mostly, and mm -hmm. they come up with some gems and we put out two issues. The pandemic stopped us, but we're planning to do like six a year or so. It's been a it's been a really rewarding thing. Great, that's really cool. Are the conventions getting back into gear yet? I know the uh, most of my stuff here is music, and so I know that a lot of the starting to gear up, especially a lot of the uh, country acts and stuff. But are the conventions starting to roll? They are. Yeah. They're loosening up, and Tony, you you know, because you 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 you're still yeah. both monster palooza right you're you're the mc no well I, when the pandemic hit that that was the end of that uh 
but Monsterpalooza is supposed to be back in September, mm-hmm. and but other shows of starting up this summer. You know, some uh, there's a convention in May somewhere, mid-May massacre, I think it's called, mm-hmm. or or just happened. I think that was it. Um, and Creation Entertainment, they're doing a whole bunch of licensed shows um, during the summer, right through the fall. So they're 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 back. You know, the the, the um, a lot of the COVID restrictions have been relaxed and. Uh, people are itching to go to a show again, and you know the convention um, sp- sponsors are going to be delivering. You know, if they're not already, de- definitely throughout the rest of the year. So the, the shows will be back, luckily, and in, 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 in a big way. Cool. Where I'm, where I'm living, everyone is so confused. Like some people, you know, some places you go in, they don't, they don't want you to wear masks. Other places you go in, they want wear masks you know it's like what the hell you know wish they yeah. get their wish they get it straight one way or another yeah so many mixed yeah. messages <laughs> yeah it's hard so i got a final question for you guys unless you have other stuff you want to talk about you're welcome to but um well, i'd like to talk about your life joel you know <laughs> should i tell us uh, we said so this time at michael that's let's get into uh <laughs> so how i met michael right is uh, i was i was representing a financier and so I meet Michael at Jerry's Deli. And I, I did. I loved that film, Death Hunt, because it was, I don't know what the deal was, but it was on a lot as a kid. And so mm-hmm. my father and I would watch it. And I'd seen it at least three or four times, but I was sitting with my dad and um, it just hit. I still remember Lee Marvin looking at Charles Bronson and that gaze is a big moment in, in film history for me. So I was excited to meet Michael. So we sit down and he goes, so this guy, uh, you're here because this fella has money. No, he's totally full of shit. <laughs> he, he has no money. And he's like, okay, he goes, I'm gonna, but he bought me these shoes to come meet you. And uh, you wrote this, you wrote Death Hunt. And, and Michael was like, Death Hunt? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, what about Poltergeist? I'm like, I've never seen it. Oh. <laughs> he goes, you've never seen it? Like, you like I'm like, yeah, man. And then we started hanging out all the time. But oh, that yeah. was. Oh, he made a big impression on me because he was so honest. And then he and then he was like the producer line producer on a short that I did. So he was Oh yeah. Yeah, we put that together, but it was fun. It was great. Thank you for drive. It was a lot of fun. You were well, really my book recently, it's called my book. It's called Memoir of a Roadie. And I I, uh, I dedicated it to Michael and my mom. So I actually the dedication page was if you liked the book. You can blame Michael for making me uh, years and years of telling me to write it. And if you don't like the book, then I dedicate it to my mom because a mother <laughs> is, on, is, on, is, is there That's for you like, regardless. All to cover your bases. <laughs> yeah, I covered everything. It went good. It went good. So I, uh, I did. But so my question is, um, I was trying to put this podcast together and my friend's uh, daughter's in fifth grade and she had a couple little friends over and she said, you should ask people when they first felt famous. And I love the concept because you don't have to be a celebrity to feel good about yourself or feel uh, famous or feel good. So for each of you, when was the first time that comes to mind where you felt, we'll say famous, when you felt good about uh, something you had just accomplished, you, you were seeing something, something happened. And I've had great answers on this right across the board. Hmm. Um. Well, I remember when I was uh, still a, a freelance writer in the 80s, I had written some articles for Starlog magazine, and they were doing a Starlog convention in New York City, and I was in, invited to attend. I had a free pass because I was, uh, you know, I was a contributor, and I and I showed up, and they had uh, 
uh, um, a big blow up of the, the issue in which my first article is in, uh, a cover on, on uh, posted on a wall and then in, in a little box underneath, you know, appearing today, Starlog writer, Tony Timpone. And like, whoa, that, that was my first kind of inkling that, wow, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm making some kind of impact or I'm, I'm reaching somebody and someone's, I've impressed someone. So that was uh, an early taste of it, I, I would say. That's neat. That's very cool. We got Joe. Gosh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a third generation entertainer. So I was around my famous family a lot in Hawaii. They okay, so hold on. You got to tell Michael because, Michael, you're going to love this. It's very cool. Michael, I'm going I'm to send you some links to my, my grandmother who rest her. She she's, was a big star in London. She, did, she was a hula dancer. With oh, Felix cool. Mendelsohn, <laughs> really cool, Michael. <laughs> and Very... I've got a bunch of Pathé footage of her dancing. She's stunning. She had fan clubs to the day she died in London. Wow. She died at wow. 84. So I was around a lot of famous people. My dad was one of these entertainers who really felt he was a knife dancer. Mm -hmm. um, a Polynesian knife dancer is one of the first people mm -hmm. to do the fire knife dance and all that that you see in the luau. He taught mm -hmm. a lot of people. He was the most photographed Samoan person in the world for a five-year period. <laughs> but um, dad, dad also was raised in English boarding school. So he started in vaudeville and then the European stage and things like that. So he had this misconception that everybody in the entertainment business was a colleague. It was very theater. Mm -hmm. So he would take to throwing me on the laps of famous, we'd be at a, a restaurant or something say here joey sit on mr benny's lap for a minute i'm going to the bathroom he put me on jack benny's lap and go to the bathroom. <laughs> and benny would be like hi you know didn't know what to do or mel, one day he left me on mel blanc's lap for half an hour at the at the holiday mart supermarket while he ran errands and he just did voices for me so i, I would you know but for me feeling feeling there's been two occasions the first thing is as a host of these conventions for a decade when when kids come up to me and say I hear that I hear that you're special. You specialize in anxious fans. I've always wanted to meet so and so and so and so, and I've been standing behind this pole crying for two hours. I, and I said, "Come here," and I'll take their hand and take them over there. And at the point that I realized I had a reputation for being sort of a, a shy fan whisperer, that was a huge <laughs> accomplishment for me. It made me feel really good. And other than that, I think the the first time I felt like people knew who I was, was I was a waiter at a restaurant and I've been in the music industry for 30 years. I've been a studio singer. You don't even know that, Joel, but- No, I had no idea. For everybody, Disney, everybody. And we'd sent a demo with this band I was in to David Byrne's Luwaka Bop uh, label. And I was working late at the restaurant as a waiter uh, was about 20, 20 some years ago. And he came in uh, and he walked in and he sat at the bar and I was like, oh, we just sent something to him. Oh, this is so exciting. But I, of course, like, we weren't allowed to talk to anybody. As I go into the bar, um, somebody said, Joe Moe, do you have the last customer? And David Burton said, Joe Moe, Joe Moe, are you part of this band so-and-so? Did you just send me a three-song demo? It's very disparate. And he talked to me for about 15 minutes about this music that I'd sent him. Wow. Oh, neat. That's when I felt important. Cool. That's when I felt like I'm known by someone who's known. So that, that, was, that would be nice. What was the name of the band? That, at that time, that band was called the Native Shrubs of the Santa Monica Mountains, the Shrubs. The Shrubs. <laughs> I like it. What do you got, Michael? You know, I have a trouble with fame. Um, <clears throat> I was just wanted to be successful. And when anybody would have 
approach me with the idea of fame, I would think, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not famous. But I have one incident I can tell you where I felt famous, even though it has nothing to do with my film career. <laughs> my wife singer for Jackson Brown. And so um, I went on the road for a week with uh, Jackson Brown and Tom Petty. And I got a, a full access pass and I had it around my neck and I made full use of that full access pass. I got something, I got something in my eye and I made one of the roadies go get me eye drops at the, at the I mean, my wife could not believe what I was, what I was doing. And then we went to a private, uh, somebody hired him for a private party uh, for some really wealthy guy in in Denver, and um, and I was sitting. I went sitting in the audience, and I don't know how it happened, but uh, all these pretty girls who were all with guys that were you know twice their age, but they they were in their you know thirties, maybe maybe early forties, whatever. But you know Texas girls, you know, blonde and you know decked out and everything and so there's they're all around me we're sitting in the middle aisle and they're all sitting around me talking to me and talking to me and jennifer's looking for me she's on the stage she's looking for me and i see her eyes catch me there it's like oh god (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the rock show (laughs) that's that's when I felt famous. I think rock stars are famous or actors are famous, but writers, you know, you know, I, I know. put it, I put in my book that uh, a waiter wants to be an actor, but the writers become taxi cab drivers until they get going. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't, if you don't invest well, uh, you know, when you're young and, and hot. Yeah. That's uh, a lot of my friends have, have uh, felt the pain. Yeah. Well, especially lately, you know, so Jennifer, speaking of Jennifer, so I know she's very into the American Indian uh, spiritual life, let's say. So did she bring that to you or were you were you into that before her? She was into it. uh, I got into it, as I said, I got into it with uh, when I was uh, with Mark on form on Formentera and when the first uh, Castaneda book came out. That was my first introduction to Native American or to, you know, that kind of magic, if you will. And um, so I was interested in that. Yeah. And and then when we met, we had that in common. Uh, oh, that's fun. Yeah. So, yeah, she's still she's still doing it. She's, you know, has clients. Yeah, what was her, I should I should know her albums, we should have said, but uh, they're really great, Joe. You'd really like them. Really, she's, I mean, she's, a singer, she's a professional sure. singer, so she's fantastic. But uh, yeah. they're really good. The last, t- one, the last huh? one they hear, which she did with a, a drummer, and they uh, brought in all kinds of uh, other um, instrumentalists. Uh, it just turned out re- really, really well. It was cool. Well, guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the few minutes. Oh, one of the good ones here. So the, the fella, you know, when did you first feel famous? And he goes, well, um, I started working at a university. This was just a couple of days ago. I started working in a university and um, uh, we, we, we did these speaking tours. So he's a sound guy. He goes, so I, I, I ended up doing a full tour with um, 
Oh God, totally. What's a South Africa, Nelson Mandela. So for 15 minutes every day, I would put all of the sound on him and get to talk to him for 15 minutes. I'm like, and all of us were just speechless because we had just been talking about like touring with heart and great white or something. <laughs> I'm kind of, he goes, Oh, and then, uh, you know what I did? I did it with the Dalai Lama too. And we're just like, Oh my God. <laughs> so I, I like asking it now because it's turned into this, like, I mean, who would have saw that coming? I mean, Nelson Mandela every day. <laughs> well, nice meeting you all. Yeah, same here. Nice Great. meeting you, Michael, and good to see you again, Joe, and nice meeting you, Joel. Absolutely. I look forward okay. to talking to you guys all soon. Yeah, thanks for having, having us on. This was a lot of fun. Michael, hope we'll be talking to you again. Tony, I know I'll oh, see yeah. you, and Joe, I see you every other week. So Yeah, you're <laughs> stuck with me, man. I, I'm stuck with me. So. Pleasure meeting you, Michael both. actually uh, once... So Michael gave me his television set when I first met him because he was moving. He goes, you can have everything. You can have everything I own. You can have whatever. He's not a very materialistic person. There wasn't shit in the house to take. There was like a few chairs. I mean, what do you want me to take? So he gave me his television. And that's when I first met him. Mayonnaise is still good. Yeah, yeah I, I called Brian and uh, Brian works with Joe. And I said, hey, I, I got the guy who wrote Poltergeist's TV. He goes, the one from the movie? No, the one from his living room. <laughs> it's like yeah we we don't care about that and i was like oh <laughs> all right i'll well, be done take care guys bye guys yeah. cheers hey thanks for watching party like a rock star if you're not already subscribed to the facebook or youtube channels do it we're also on twitter Instagram, and TikTok. The handle is Party of Stars. Thanks for watching. You'll see you next time.